Good morning, everybody. Um, our reading this morning uh, is, of course, from Malachi. I'm going to be reading um, right from the start of the book uh, through to 2 verse 9. And we're in uh, page, I think it says on the screen, we're in page 960 in your red Bibles. I'll just give you a sec to find that, and then we'll go. So Malachi 1 verse 1 through to 2 verse 9. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Eden may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You'll see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? by saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it's contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices. Should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations." And now this admonition is for you, O priests. 
you do not listen and if you do not set your heart to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him. This called for true, for, sorry, this called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me with peace, in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned, away, turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Thanks, Paul. Good morning, everybody. My name's Joe. Um, If we haven't met, um, I work as a student pastor here. And as Nathan said, we're beginning a new series this morning in the Old Testament book of Malachi. And the book of Malachi begins in the most striking way. Have a look at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? I wonder if you've ever heard the song, Where is the Love? by the Black Eyed Peas. Um, That was the first song that I downloaded on my first iPod back in 2003, if you remember those things. Um, And at one point in my youth, you'd have found me jumping up and down at Wembley Stadium as that song was performed live. Where is the love? Now, I don't think the Black Eyed Peas were thinking about the book of Malachi as they penned those words, but I think their question fits this book really well. Where is the love? In verse 2, that's what Israel are asking God, isn't it? How have you loved us? Now, I think that's a painful and heart-wrenching question for the people of Israel to ask their God. How have you loved us? Just imagine with me that a loving mother and father raise a child from infancy into her teenage years. And imagine that this child reaches the age where she's about to leave home. She's 18 years old. Bags are packed. She's ready to start a new job in a different city. And imagine the child turning to her parents and saying, Mom, Dad, do you love me? And the mom and dad look back, maybe on 18 years of loving parenting, the changed nappies, the sacrifices, the sleepless nights, the ways they've poured out their lives for their daughter, but she is blind to it all. Wouldn't that be incredibly difficult for any parent? Well, that's what the people of Israel are thinking about their God. They have convinced themselves that God does not love them. And the shock of that is that they don't just have 18 years to look back on. They have 1,500 years of salvation history, 15 centuries of God loving his people. And they ask, Lord, how have you loved us? 
Now, it's worth asking the question, why do the people of Israel doubt God's love at this point in their history? What's going on in Malachi that means the people are unpersuaded that God loves them at this point? Well, as you can tell from where this book is placed in the Old Testament, it comes right at the end of the Old Testament story. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament that was written before uh, Jesus arrives 400 years later. And at this point in their history, Israel have returned from exile in Babylon. It's a post-exilic book. Israel are back in Jerusalem. They'd gone into exile because of their sin. Now they're back in the promised land and the temple has been rebuilt. But even though they're back in Jerusalem... The situation for Israel seems bleak. The temple is really small and humble compared to the temple of Solomon. They do not have a king to rule their nation like King David. They're under the sway of a foreign ruler. And they're asking themselves, is this it? Is this what God had promised? Where is the glorious return from exile? Where is the fulfillment of God's promises? Where is his love for us? So that's what's going on in the minds of those uh, who are here listening uh, to Malachi, the Israelites. But the sharp challenge of this book is that God is asking the same question of the people. Where is your love for me? As we journey through Malachi together, we'll see that many of the actions and the words and the attitudes of the people reveal a half-hearted response to God. They're simply going through the motions They're giving God second best. They have a lukewarm attitude in their hearts towards the Lord. They're double-minded in their attitude to him. They do not truly love their Lord. And it's important for us to see as we begin that those two things are connected. We could say that the people of Israel are half-hearted because they are short-sighted. They're half-hearted because they have lost sight of the love of God. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, I wonder if you've ever gone through periods of your Christian life where your love for Jesus feels weak, where your service of him could be described as half-hearted at best. Times when you too feel like you're going through the motions, perhaps turning up for church on a Sunday and then living without love for the Lord during the week when you feel like your Christian love is slowly, uh, Christian joy is slowly fading away. Now I imagine, if you're anything like me, that we all resonate with that experience, either an experience of the past or an experience right now, half-hearted love for the Lord. And if we do see those symptoms in our own lives and in our own hearts, then we need the book of Malachi. Malachi was written to convince half-hearted disciples of the whole-hearted love of God in order to move us to honour his name with our entire lives. He will be like a painful and much-needed doctor who will diagnose our half-heartedness in really vivid, painful ways at times, but at the same time will give us the precious medicine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, Malachi is written to you as well to convince you that the love of God that he has shown in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only thing worth giving your entire life to. 
So we're going to begin together with this statement we've already begun to explore, the statement of verse 2. I have loved you. Now the book begins in verse 1 with a very encouraging verse, I think. Just have a look at verse 1 of Malachi. An oracle. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Why do I say that's encouraging? Well, I think there are three reasons why um, this is encouraging as we begin. Firstly, we learn that God is still speaking. Malachi has a message from God that needs to be delivered to the people. God has not given up on them. He's speaking to them. It's encouraging, secondly, because it is the Lord who is speaking. This is God's covenant name. It's the name he gave to Moses in Exodus, a name that reminds us of his faithfulness to his promises. We have the word of the Lord. And it's encouraging, thirdly, because it is given to Israel. If the Lord is God's covenant name, then Israel are God's covenant people. They have been for centuries. And however much time has passed, however bad the situation has become, that is still the case. Verse 1 tells us that God is still speaking, he is still their God, and they are still his people. And into that situation comes the words of verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Now in this verse, we see the start of a pattern that we'll see throughout the book of Malachi. Every statement that God makes to his people, they dispute. I've loved you, God says, but you ask, how have you loved us? Prove it. Do you see, they dispute the claim that God makes. And this pattern comes up again and again in the book. That's why the sections of Malachi are sometimes known as disputations. It's a series of disputes. So as we hear this book, um, look together for those words, but you ask. I think they come up about nine times in the book of Malachi. You can sum it up uh, like this. Here's the pattern. God makes a statement. The people dispute that statement and try and wriggle out of it. And then God proves why that statement is true. We'll see that pattern again and again. And here is the first statement, and this statement underpins the whole message of Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. If the people in Malachi's day are convinced of that truth, then their lives will be transformed. And if we too are convinced by that truth, our lives will be transformed. Before we look any further, I want you to think how you'd expect God to answer their dispute. Remember, 1,500 years of God's love for his people Israel, centuries and centuries of God proving his love to Israel. They've seen his love in his promises to Abraham, in the exodus from Egypt, in the giving of the law. They've seen his love in the provision of sacrifices for their sin, in the giving of manna in the wilderness, in their entry into the promised land. They've seen his love when God raised up judges to lead them and gave them a king to rule them when he gave Jerusalem to live in after the exile. Any of those things would have been really fitting answers, wouldn't they, to this question that they ask, how have you loved us? But I find God's answer surprising. Have a look at verse 2 with me. How have you loved us? Answer. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated And I've turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. So here is God's answer to that question in verse 2. How have you loved us? 
Well, you can see my love for you, God says, in my choice of you. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, these words take us back to two brothers that we meet in the book of Genesis. You might know the story. These brothers were born to Isaac and Rebekah, and they were twins. Just let me read you some words from Genesis 25 on the screen so that we can remind ourselves of the story. And I want you to notice what God promised before uh, these boys were born. Here is the promise. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. It must have been quite a shock. So they named him Esau. Um, Esau means hairy. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Now, did you notice in these verses the promise that God made uh, to Isaac? Before these twins were born, God promised that one people would be stronger than the other and that the older would serve the younger. God chose Jacob, before Jacob was even born, to be the one through whom blessing would flow to the world. He chose Jacob and his descendants to be his holy people. He set his covenant love upon Jacob before Jacob had done anything good or bad. And this Jacob, you might know, was later named Israel. And so he is the father of this nation who are in Jerusalem at the time that Malachi is writing. So God is saying to all Israel, you know that I love you because I chose you and I did not choose your brother Esau. And I did not choose his descendants who are called the Edomites, as we'll read in the next few verses. Jacob I have loved but Esau I have hated. Now I realize that's a tricky statement to unpack. What does it mean for God to hate someone? And in this case, to hate a whole nation that would come from Esau, the Edomites. What's going on here? Well, the first thing to say is that whenever we read of God's attitudes or emotions in the Bible, we need to avoid just copying and pasting whatever we think about that word in terms of our human emotion onto God. He's not a creature. And so when we read of his hatred, we're not to think he hates like humans hate. I think the key point, uh, it seems to me, is about contrast. God chose Jacob, but he did not choose Esau. He entered into a covenant relationship with Jacob, but he did not do the same with Esau. He made a choice, a choice not based on the works of these two human beings, but based on his love. And that committed covenant love of God has made all the difference to Israel. God has judged the Edomites, as we see here, because he's committed to the Israelites. He has turned the mountains of Edom into a wasteland, and even though they say they'll rebuild, God will tear them down. Have a look at verse 4. They may build, but I will demolish, says God. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. 
you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. So God wants his people here in Malachi's day to look around at the fate of the Edomites and to know that his love for them has made all the difference. It's not that Israel has been more faithful or more loyal or more obedient to God, far from it. But God has set his covenant love upon Israel. He has chosen them to be his people. The land of the Edomites has been laid waste. Their mountains have been turned into a wasteland because of the judgment of God. But Jerusalem still stands. Israel carries on, and they do so only because of the committed covenant love of their Lord. Now this reality, the steadfast, committed love of God, should be deeply shaping the lives of the people in Jerusalem. God's love for them should be the thing that gets them up in the morning. It should be the truth that shapes all of their lives. It should be the one unshakable foundation that this nation is built upon. But as we saw in verse 2, Israel are now in a situation where they have forgotten the love of God. The truth that should be ever before their minds is now a distant memory. And so we now turn in Malachi, really for the rest of the book, to consider what happens when God's people forget God's love. What happens when God's people forget God's love? The love of God that should be the fuel that drives the engine of the nation of Israel. What happens when that fuel is gone? Well, what happens is that nothing works as it should. So what we see in the next part of our passage, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you have dishonored me. As Malachi begins to lift the bonnet on life in Israel, his attention turns to the priests. Do you see in verse 6, it's the priests who are in view. You, O priests, who show contempt for my name. And then chapter 2, verse 1. Now this admonition is for you, O priests. So he's got the priests in mind, and he begins by exploring life in the temple. What's going on in the temple? What's life like in the temple in Israel? Have a look with me at verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? So God says to the priests in Israel, look at a father-son relationship. Isn't there honor shown by a son to a father, isn't that fitting, isn't that appropriate? Or look at a servant-master relationship, isn't there respect shown from servant to master, isn't that right, isn't that entirely appropriate? And God's rule over Israel is similar to that of both father and master, he is their loving Lord. But he says to them, I receive no respect and no honor from you, O priests. As we've already been thinking about in Malachi, God's claim is disputed. The priests are blind to reality, and so they ask, how? How have we shown contempt for your name? What do you mean, Lord? Give us the evidence. And in response, Malachi brings forward his evidence. It's a bit, it's a bit like Malachi is saying to them now, um, come with me and let me sort of walk you around what's going on in the temple, the place where you work. Let, let's look together at what's going on there. Let's look together at the kind of sacrifices that you're offering to me. 
Let's see the kind of animals that you're accepting from the people. Let's examine the attitudes that you have to your work. And the reason Malachi does this is because their work in the temple is a vital indicator of their attitude to God. We need to know that the temple in Jerusalem was not just a building. It was the place of God's dwelling on earth. God had promised to live with his people in the temple and to put his name in the temple. Now, you might know if you've read through Malachi this week that the idea of God's name is a a really big theme in Malachi. And his name represents his revealed character and his glorious presence in the world. And he's saying, I've put my name in the temple. God has promised that his presence would dwell there in the most holy place. And therefore, the behavior of the priests in the temple and their attitude to the sacrifices that they're offering to God in the temple tells us about their attitude to the God who dwells in the temple. How they treat the temple reveals how they treat the God who has put his name there. And the signs are not good. Have a look at verse 7. They were placing defiled food upon the altar, and this is kind of expanded upon in verse 8. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? So the priests are offering sacrifices to God that he has not required and that he will not accept. God has commanded the priests in Israel to only bring pure and blameless sacrifices to be sacrificed on the altar Those sacrifices should have taught the people that they needed an unblemished sacrifice to atone for their sins, a spotless lamb for a sinful human. That was the requirement. But blind and crippled and diseased animals would not be accepted by the Lord. You can read about that in places like Leviticus 22. But the priests in Jerusalem are very happy to offer roadkill sacrifices to God, as one commentator puts it. They take the runty animals in the flock, the the second best. They don't care what honors God. They don't care what doesn't honor him. They don't care what sacrifices he accepts and what, what sacrifices he doesn't. Anything will do in their minds. And doesn't that say an awful lot about how much they value their relationship with the Lord? The temple was a a wonderful provision of God that represented his relationship with this people. It was a way that his presence could be maintained among them. It was a sign of his covenant love for them. And so the priestly work in the temple was not simply a mechanical transaction. We'll give God these things, he'll give us something in return. No, it was a mark of relationship with their covenant lords. Sacrifices were to be offered in joyful thanks and humble obedience to the God who dwelt in the temple. He's not a cold, distant God. He's a near, personal God. But the priests were despising him, they were belittling him, they were dishonoring him. And God says, you may as well get out the padlock and lock the doors of the temple. Have a look at verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. What's the point of bringing a sacrifice to God that he's not asked for? What's the point of bringing an animal with a half-hearted, thankless spirit? It's useless. God is not pleased. He's not fooled by them. 
This is the evidence that God brings against the priests. No love for God, no honor for his name, only contempt. And I find this situation in Israel very disturbing because on the outside, things probably looked okay. It's not as if the priests had stopped making sacrifices. It's not as if the people had stopped bringing animals to be sacrificed at the temple. No, there's plenty of activity, isn't there? Plenty of busyness, plenty of blood being shed. Probably looked good on the outside, you know, business as usual. But look a little deeper and you'll find half-hearted priests accepting sacrifices from half-hearted people. You'll find no concern for the name and glory of God. And you'll find a nation who does not love him. This is what happens when God's people forget God's love. Their worship becomes cold. God is treated with contempt. Service of him becomes a burden. And yet people just carry on. Not committed enough to offer God wholehearted worship. And not courageous enough to abandon him altogether. Just cold, joyless, going through the motions. They've forgotten God. And they've forgotten the love of God. And if they carry on this way, Malachi says, they will be cursed. Have a look at verse 14. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in the flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Who do the people think they're worshipping in the temple? Whose name do they think dwells there? A small God who cares nothing about their hearts? No. This God is a great king whose name is to be feared among the nations. He's the Lord Almighty. The priests have dis- dishonored this God in the temple. But more than that, they've dishonored him in their teaching. Now, if you've been used to reading the Bible, I wonder what you have in mind when you think of the role of the priest. There are some jobs, aren't there, where the job title says a lot about what uh, that person does in their job. So, for example, shepherds look after sheep. Butchers butcher animals. Bin collectors collect bins. Accountants account for things. Um, What do priests do? What is their main role? Well, we've seen one aspect, haven't we? They offer acceptable sacrifices on behalf of the people, or at least they should do. But we see now that their role was bigger than that in the nation of Israel. They were also leaders and teachers among the people. We're going to see that as we read about a man called Levi. And it's worth knowing that Levi uh, was the head of the priestly line, one of the sons of Jacob. And every priest who served in the temple had to be a male Levite. So being a priest, that was the the family business for uh, this tribe. But what did the family business involve? Well, look with me at verses 5 to 7 to start with, where we find out uh, what the role was for the priests in Israel. My covenant was with him, Levi, says God, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips, He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. 
Now, this uh, surprised me, really, as I was looking at these verses, just to remind me again what the role of the, the priest was in Israel. Do you see? He was an instructor, a teacher. True instruction was found in his mouth, mouth verse 6, and from his mouth men should seek instruction. So people would come to the priest to be taught and to be instructed in the word of God. You can trace that theme throughout the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah was also a priest. Ezra, who instructed people in God's law in Nehemiah, was a priest. And Ezra, uh, as he taught the law, um, the Levites went around among the crowds instructing the people. So they were messengers, they were teachers of the Lord Almighty. And they were expected to perform this role with reverence for God. They were supposed to be godly leaders who would lead the people in godliness too. We see that in verse 5. God's covenant with Levi called for reverence. Priests had to walk faithfully with God and teach faithfully his words. They had to watch their lives and their doctrine. So this was at the heart of the covenant relationship God established with Levi and every priest who would come after him. And I think Malachi gives us this picture here in these verses by way of contrast. He wants the priests in his own day to see just how far short they have fallen from this covenant that he established with Levi. They need to know that they've not kept covenant with God. They've not honored him. And rather than turning many away from sin, they have led people into sin. Have a look at verse 8 with me. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. So do you see the priests have not watched their life and their doctrine closely? They've turned from the way of God. They've led the people into sin. Just think about life in the temple. Every time somebody brought a lame sacrifice, an unacceptable sacrifice, into the temple courts, that was an opportunity, wasn't it, for the priests to say, no, not that sacrifice. God won't accept that from your hands. It was an opportunity to turn the heart of the worshiper back to God. Instead, they accepted those roadkill sacrifices without question and therefore led many into sin. They've despised the temple, despised the altar, despised God, and so they must now hear his warning. Have a look at the warning in verses 1 to 3. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen... And if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. The priests should have received the blessing of God. They should have been a channel of blessing to the people but they will come under their God's curse if they do not listen to God. Malachi is saying to the priests, you cannot carry on in vain worship of God, scorning him and dishonoring his name and think that he doesn't care. Judgment will come. And this judgment that's talked about in these verses is talked about in a very vivid, isn't it, and, and humiliating way for the priests. God will rebuke their descendants and he will spread on the faces of the priests the offal from their sacrifices. It's very unpleasant language. The offal is translated in other translations as dung. 
It's the stuff within the intestines of the animals that were brought to the altar. And God had commanded that the offal should have been burned up in fire on the altar. But as we've seen, the priests have no regard for what they should or shouldn't do as they offer sacrifices in the temple. And so God says, this offal will be spread on your faces. It's a vivid picture using picture language to describe the judgment that will fall on the priests if they do not listen to God. It's a sign of the humiliating curse that will come on them if they do not set their hearts to honor God's name. I wonder if you're beginning to see the sad reality in the nation of Israel at this point. The priests who should have been leading the people, setting an example in godliness, setting an example in teaching, are dishonoring God's name and leading the nation into sin. The people who were called to love God with their hearts, souls, minds and strength are perfectly happy with half-hearted sacrifices that do not please God. And the nation is in this position because they have lost sight of verse 2 of chapter 1. They're half-hearted because they're short-sighted. They cannot see the plain covenant love of God for his people. And having lost that anchor, they've now drifted off into vain, going through the motions kind of worship. But in these verses, we're also given a glimmer of hope to say that this is not the end of the story because tucked away in this passage, God makes a glorious promise. And this is where I want to conclude our time this morning. God makes a promise that extends far beyond Jerusalem. It's a promise that reaches down two and a half thousand years later into our own day today. Have a look at chapter one, verse 11 with me. God says this, my name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Do you see the promise? There's a time coming, says the Lord, when his name will be great among the nations. A time when pure offerings will be offered to his name. A time when people from every nation around our world will proclaim the greatness of our God. And as we've looked at these verses together, we have begun to see just what it will take for God's name to be restored among the nations. The problem was unfaithful priests. We need a perfect priest, one like Levi, who would honor God from a sincere heart. The problem was roadkill sacrifices, and so we need someone to offer a perfect sacrifice one that God accepts that can truly take away sin. The problem was half-hearted worship. And so God's people need to know the love of God in blazing clarity in order to be moved to wholehearted obedience. This is what it will take for God's name to be great from the rising to the setting of the sun. And in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of these longings of Malachi have been fulfilled. Just listen to these words from Ephesians 5 verse 2 on the screen. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus Christ looks his people in the eye and says, I have loved you. I've loved you before the dawn of time. 
And I've loved you so very much that I've given myself up for you as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I myself have taken upon myself the covenant curses promised in Malachi. I've borne your shame on the cross. I've paid for your sin in my death. I've offered my body as a sacrifice that God accepts. I have loved you, says the Lord Jesus. And it is this message alone, the love of Jesus displayed on the cross that has the power to transform individuals and transform churches to be people and places where God's name is truly honoured. And isn't this what God is doing across our world right now as the gospel message sounds out? From the rising to the setting of the sun, there are people who know the greatness of their king and who are gladly offering their lives to him. As I said at the beginning, some of us will be in a situation today where our love for Jesus is fading where our service of him is losing some of its sweetness, where our worship of him feels half-hearted. In other words, a very similar place to the people in Malachi's day. And if that's you, and I imagine it's all of us to some degree, then the remedy we need is not just to get our act together and try harder and just try and honor God's name. We don't need to muster up zeal. We don't need a self-help project. What do we need? We need the steadfast love of Jesus to work its way deeper and deeper into our hearts. We need the fuel of the gospel to give zeal to our service. We need the mercy of God to motivate us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. It's the love of God that will lead half-hearted people to wholehearted devotion to their Lord. And so I want to ask you this morning... Do you personally have an answer to that question in verse 2? How have you loved us, Lord? Do you have an answer to that question? Have you come to know the love of God revealed in the death of Christ? And if you have, will you commit yourself again to living for the honor of his name? For he is a great king and his name will be honored among all the nations. Let me lead us in prayer. But you ask, how have you loved us? Answer, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us the power this morning, together with all the believers across our world, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Father, as you give us a firmer grasp of that reality, maybe for the first time this morning, please help us to live wholehearted lives in honor of you with the gifts you've given us, with the capacities we have, with the opportunities that come our way. Please help us to honor you, our great King, as we are captivated by your love for us in the Lord Jesus. And we ask these things in his glorious name. Amen.